Hey, welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. Hopefully what we can do is give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm joined, as I always am, by Dr. David Kipper. David, you look wonderful, tan and healthy and happy. All of the above. How is everyone else? Lori, Anna, Petey? My COVID's over. Anna looks good. You were traveling? I'm not tan at all, but thank you. Yeah, you don't do the tan thing, do you? <laughs> no. See, I used to do the tan thing, but that's not healthy for you today. Right, David? You don't recommend people going out and getting the vitamin D? Absolutely the worst thing you can do. Ask any doctor but me, but ask any other doctor. But also, we're asking you because you're the one that's here. Except every doctor is really dark tan. <laughs> so I don't understand that juxtaposition. He obviously went on a really relaxing, sun-drenched vacation. Uh, this is the only work I do. So I'm I'm working an hour away. Very away. nice. Very nice. Yeah. David I, actually is so relaxed. He has a ta- giant tattoo in his chest and arms and shoulders of a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so when his shirt's off, it looks like he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Which is really really cool. So what's on today? What's on today? Today show? we're going to be talking about a few things. First of all, gene editing to help treat Alzheimer's, which looks really interesting. Second of all, we're going to be discussing the amount of exercise you have to do per week. Can you just do it on the weekend? So very curious to hear about that. This just happened. This is mind blowing. Weight weight loss drugs seem to be the miracle drugs today, right? Do they work on addiction for alcohol? Do, do they work for addiction for drugs? Does something? set off in your brain, which is in the book Override by Dr. Kipper. But we'll find out about that. And then our own producer, Laurie, is our caller today because she came up with a really interesting question last week as we were kind of wrapping the show about the six-minute office visit, doctor visit, and also wait times. A new study came out on wait times. So we're going to address all of that. So first of all, I want to say some words to you. Clustered, regularly, interspaced, short, palindromic, repeats system. CRISPR. I didn't know that that's what it stood for. I'll never remember that. I'm obviously reading it off of a thing. So they're using the CRISPR, the gene editor to help treat the uh, Alzheimer's risk gene. So what's, what's going on with this new discovery? It sounds pretty cool. We've spoken a lot on our show about Alzheimer's and we've sh- spoken a lot about gene editing. And these two have merged in some recent studies that I think are pretty interesting. Again, the population is aging. We're, we're seeing more Alzheimer's. We're putting a lot of money into trying to figure this out, how to slow it down and how to treat it. So this is actually some really interesting therapy for this. And there are two new strategies that have come out to combine the CRISPR technology with the treatment for Alzheimer's. The first one is to design to decrease the production of the beta amyloid. We know that in Alzheimer's, there's this protein that builds up beta amyloid and tau proteins, and they clog up the neural system in the brain, and they prevent these glial cells, these nerve cells in the brain, from communicating with each other and transmitting messages throughout the brain that impact our memory and our cognition. So these researchers at UC San Diego identified a gene that makes beta amyloid. It's called the AP gene, APP gene. And they use CRISPR to modify these genes. That's what CRISPR does. It edits these genes. And it basically snipped off the bottom of this AP gene. And the production of amyloid went way down. 
which then removed the clogging of these glial cells and has allowed a better transmission of these uh, nerve pathways to protect our memory and our cognitive ability. And it's interesting how this works, because if you think about this, uh, removing this gene, which is in the pathway of making amyloid, if you think about statins that we use for cholesterol, and even Paxlovid that we use for COVID, it's the same concept. So the statins for cholesterol, to make a cholesterol molecule, you have to have a production line. So you need flour. If you're going to make a cake, flour, eggs, sugar, that's as much as I know about making a cake. But let's say <laughs> you job. took out the flour. If you take out the flour, you're not going to get a very good cake. So that analogy here is if you can take out that gene that is the precursor to making amyloid, you're not going to make good amyloid. You're not going to make enough amyloid. And if you extrapolate that to an antiviral, and we have these out there, we have AIDS, we have herpes, we have other antivirals that work in a similar way. For a virus to make another virus, it has to grab things from within the system that allow it to produce another virus and to replicate. So same concept, Paxlovid, you give Paxlovid to someone that's got COVID, and that virus can't make another COVID virus because the Paxlovid looks like a, a fake or false ingredient to making a new virus. So the minute you start taking Paxlovid, you're not making any new virus. That's why we encourage people to take this drug early, but this isn't about COVID, this is about Alzheimer's. So that's, that's one strategy. And the other strategy that actually has come out of Duke University is to dampen the effect of the gene that we know that implies a very high risk for developing Alzheimer's, and that's the APO4 gene. And what they did was that they manipulated this gene. It's a very specific gene in the lineage of getting to APO4, and it's a specific APO4E4. It's a subset. It's a variant of that high-risk gene. That gene is so risky. If you have one copy of that gene, you increase your risk for Alzheimer's by two to three times. If you have two copies of that gene, you increase your risk by eight to 12 times. So this is a very significant breakthrough for this. And they, were, <laughs> they did this working with mice, poor mice. And what they found was that by altering this gene and minimizing uh, this gene, we dampen the impact of that gene. Therefore, we lower the risk. So these are two new breakthroughs in the combination of gene editing in treatment for Alzheimer's. And they come from very different angles. And this is very exciting. Do they know unequivocally that a gene editing doesn't have repercussions down the road, some horrific thing that we didn't anticipate? Because again, you're playing with the body. So when you alter one thing, does it impact something? And maybe we don't know that or didn't detect that yet, but oh, wow, the ramifications of that down the road. Peter, that's probably the smartest question that people can ask, but rarely ask about CRISPR. Because when you alter these genes, these are permanent changes. So that question, we don't know the answer to that. In other words, are we altering this gene and creating another monster. Right. We don't know that, that. We don't know and that we don't even know that it surfaced or we set it off down the road or it'll be 
not that person, but their offspring. You know, it's just you're you're playing in in the gene pool, as they say. So <laughs> we do know that these genes are specifically related to these diseases. So if I'm somebody with a family member, or if it's me, that's fighting this disease, I'm going to roll the dice on that. But that is the question, Peter. And I don't think we're going to have an answer to that for a number of years. It, that's fascinating. They can do that. But that was also my thought. I was like, are we going to grow an arm out of our head if we change the genes around? But obviously, they're, this machinery is very specific. So it's so specific. It, it stands for a bunch of nouns that I'll probably never be able to pronounce ever again in the future. So exercise. And and this is where I get confused. And sort of, I, the 150 minutes per week, I always am like, do they mean cardio? Do they mean weight bearing exercise, weight training? I know weight bearing exercise is walking. Weight training, do they mean, you know, do we have to do it on the weekend? Do we have to do it every single day, spread out evenly? But they're saying that weekend warriors now, meaning the folks who really work out hard on the weekend are actually healthier than the people who exercise regularly. And what kind of exercise? It's an interesting question, especially for those of us that try to exercise. And we know that metric. We, most of us know that we need 150 minutes. And to answer your question, it can be moderate exercise to vigorous exercise. It just has to be a little bit beyond inactivity. So okay. Harvard did a study. They did an interesting study. They looked at 500,000 people in the United Kingdom from ages 40 to 69 years old. And they looked at their data over five years. And the way they studied people was that they gave them activity, which was walking or cycling, and they gave them a wrist monitor so that they could see what they were producing and what they were doing. And they measured these results against specific diseases. One of these diseases, one of these problems was heart failure. They, they looked at, is it better to be spacing out your exercise during the week? What's the impact on the risk for heart failure? versus people that are the weekend warriors that just do this Saturday and Sunday. And what they found was interesting. They found that if you were spacing your exercise out during the week, you cut that risk for heart failure by 36%. If you were a weekend warrior, you cut that risk for heart failure by 38%. Hmm. So what that tells us, and this, these statistics bore out with other diseases, Therefore, you should just get your exercise in. It almost doesn't matter when you do it. There Whenever are problems. Can. There yeah. are problems, however, as a weekend warrior. One thing we know that you do start to lose conditioning as adults after three days of inactivity. So at least there's one negative to that. You're more prone to injury if you take five days off and two days on and you're, you're working harder. Uh, and the weekend warriors tend to have more contact sports, more contact activities, higher risk there. But if you look at the benefits from exercise, independent of when you do it, we know, for instance, that when you exercise to this degree, you build collateral circulation, you build arteries. Um, I have a friend who has terrible heart disease and he's got stents and he's every 10 minutes thinks he's having a heart attack. And to evaluate him, it's, it's complicated. To, but not too long ago, his symptoms were enough that we did an angiogram on him. And he exercises every day. And he's a gentleman in his 80s, and, but looks great. And his, his brain is functioning great. When we 
did the angiogram, what we found was that he built collaterals. He had one artery, a, a part of one artery that was compromised, that was creating his symptoms, but he had built enough collateral circulation around that one area that he didn't need any intervention. And so if that, if that artery had closed off, there would have been no damage to the heart muscle underneath because he had new blood vessels. May so, I ask you not, not to, not to step on HIPAA laws. When did he start? He's 80. When did he start um, exercising? How long ago? Probably in his fifties. So, and this is from doing like zone two cardio training, like building up that VO2 capacity. It also will strengthen your, is it cardio or is it lift? Like I, it's cardio, right? Like it's more moderate. likely cardio. Yeah. But whatever you're doing that raises your pulse rate, you're doing some benefit. And it's not just the heart, it's in all the other tissues and organs too. So it's, it really does have a lot of health benefits. People that exercise in the morning um, have better dietary patterns throughout the day because they feel they did something and they're um, more careful with their choices. Every chronic illness that you could list benefits from exercise, and it's probably the vascular issue, uh, amongst one other. Uh, weight programs, they don't work unless you're also exercising. So you can do all that you can do to watch your diet, but unless you're exercising, it's not going to happen. And the other issue that I just mentioned that helps with these chronic illnesses is that exercise creates endorphins. So endorphins are the body's opiates. They actually, their endorphin receptors look like opiate receptors. And they stay in your system about 18 hours. So if you exercise early in the day, you have a good 18 hours of protection. And what do these endorphins do? They calm you. Less stress hormones less anxiety, less depression. And that impacts your sleep. Because when you go to sleep, if you've been agitated throughout the day, most of us have some agitation and frustration, it's harder to get to sleep because you lay there for a while worrying about things and that impacts the quality of your sleep. And so again, exercise has that secondary effect. Our hormones change as we get older. Uh, testosterone, DHEA, and these are hormones that are related to our conditioning, basically. And so by exercising, you are mitigating against these natural aging hormones. But I have a question for the three of you. And I a know quiz? one of you. Is it a quiz? Know, well, it's not a quiz, but and I know oh. one of you very well. So, and I won't mention Peter's name, but I'm curious to know what your number one thought is for why people, what their excuse is to not exercise. I don't have time. That's what I always hear from time. People. That's one of them. There's one more. I'm tired. No. And you're not close. <laughs> Peter, you got to guess. <laughs> I'm already so healthy. I don't need to do it. No. We're going to start kidding. tomorrow. They are, in their head, they're anticipating they're going to start sometime in the future. It actually relates to time. It's convenience. convenience. So okay. both of those excuses, those are the, the two most common excuses that I see in my practice. But convenience doesn't work anymore because you have things that you can have in your home. You have apps on your phone. You can get things on your television. You can get on a Peloton. You can own a bicycle. There, so convenience is no longer an excuse. And time is not really an excuse because 
if you walk out of your house every morning, early in the morning for 15 minutes and walk back to your house, you have 30 minutes of exercise. And so that's not complicated. It's not how long you exercise. It's not how vigorous you exercise and how high your pulse rate goes. You just have to get above your baseline pulse rate. And a 30-minute walk is going to do that. But here's the thing. I also feel like people saying, I don't know, I feel like that was a thing in the 90s that we all said, like that whole, like, you don't have time to exercise. You don't have time not to exercise. And people kind of made peace with the fact that they have to exercise. I do feel like the cleaning up the diet is the latest excuse. I can't, I can't cook in the kitchen. I've got a, I've got no time. You know what I mean? Like everything is becomes a thing. It's like, well, you can choose. Do you want to exercise and feel better? Or do you want to eat better and feel better? Do you want to just feel like crap and keep getting sick? You know what I mean? It's kind of like, I love that we talked about that study, but I'm also like, yeah, no duh. It feels good. <laughs> like, But we're, we're also a reactive healthcare system. So people go to the doctor when they have a problem. And we've also become accustomed to the fact that you go to the doctor, you're going to get a pill. You're going to get something very simple to fix your illness. So exercise falls into the preventative category. Which and is, we by the are, way, the next, the next thing we're talking about, as you said, is Ozempic. But the Ozempic will work. We'll get into this when we talk about this and the addiction studies. But um, people come in and they say, well, I've read that once I go off this medicine, I'm going to gain my weight back. And yes, you are if you don't exercise and eat well. So people think that they can take this medicine. And then when they've lost the weight they need to lose, they go back to their lifestyle habits. And they are going to go back to those very same issues. So it's important that you think preventatively, but we just, we're not geared that way. Some people are. The gentleman that got his collateral circulation certainly incredible. understands and that. That makes me feel better because, you know, at the beginning of this year, I one of my New Year's goals, I don't do resolutions because I'm not trying to quit anything. I want to, I want to resolve to do something better with myself. You know what I mean? Um, so one of my New Year's goals was to do an hour of cardio every day this year. So I'd have 365 hours by the end of the year. And I know that sounds extreme, but it also, like Kipper was saying, it counts going on a walk. Now I happen to live in a place that's very hilly. So I'm getting a lot of, you know, hills and I'm getting the cardio stressors and I'm trying to take it slow and just work out in zone two and do all that stuff. And it's been really great. Now I'm thinking, I wish I had measured, uh, somehow figured out how to measure if my VO2 capacity has improved or my heart's improved or collaterals or whatever words you're using. You're using a lot of nouns that I love. And, um, and just to see if it, it's worked. And so far I'm, I'm on track and I'm actually, I'm allowing myself to take away some of the time because I'm realizing that I'm, just doing that and not doing as much strength training as I like. But here's the thing. I realize if I don't do it, I get, I literally feel depressed. I get sad if it's two days without doing the endorphin thing, you know, it's real. I have, I have that same perspective. The days I don't exercise, I do feel differently. I think I'm, I'm, I'm less efficient and kind and all of those things. I, I notice a difference. Well, Anna, now you've learned that you can do your 360 hours of of exercise on, in tomorrow. three weekends. Yeah. Yeah. Get it all done. I will say there's a couple times because life happens and you're traveling. You're not going to be like, there's not every day you have an hour to do cardio. I know it's a ridiculous goal. But then I was like, but what happens then? It makes you go, you know what? Today I have to do it. 
because tomorrow, if I'm behind two hours, three hours, four hours, it's really going to suck making up four hours. When do you do it, Anna? You do it early in the morning, first thing? Well, now I have to spread it out because it's hot in the day. But I'll, you know, I'll spread it. I'll do a half hour on the bike, half hour walk at the end of the day, or we'll walk after dinner or we'll, you know. But, uh, But even if it's like somebody goes... By the way, and I'm not the type of person, I'm not like a, like, I love working out. I'm not like a super thin workout fitness babe. I cook food and I like, you know what I mean? So for me to set that kind of a goal was a big deal. And then I realized, oh, I like it. So you know, I, I don't know. I figure if I can get, get out there and exercise, y'all can do it. It's also harder for people that come into the office with chronic illnesses. They they come in and they've just developed diabetes. They've just developed heart disease. You big list here. And part of their treatment plan beyond taking a pill is that they have to start moving and they have to start sleeping Mm. better. And they have, so to get people to accept these lifestyle issues at the 11th hour is almost impossible. People have a very hard time shifting. David, before we move on to our, Hey, this just happened. When you said way back, you know what, it gets your heart rate up. Anything gets your heart rate up. I just thought if your grandchild gets your heart rate up, or your son does something stupid and gets your heart rate up. Is that is there a benefit to that? Absolutely. Is there the same benefit to the heart rate up? If you could have sex for 30 minutes, God love you, you're getting your heart rate up. So, yes. you If, you, if you're yelling at Tommy for 30 minutes, your heart it's, rate you get up. Your, and it doesn't discern whether it's good or bad way that you got it up. No. Wow. All right. So we were talking about the diet drugs, these weight loss drugs. And now there's a report that just came out. That's why we're talking about it. And hey, this just happened. As a potential to help addicts with alcohol addiction and with drug addiction, is that is that a real thing, David? It actually is. And what we're seeing now, because these drugs are out there and a million people are now taking these, we're getting these reports of other things that happen with these drugs. And right now, these are all anecdotal reports from people. And I see this in my practice all the time. I mentioned this a minute ago, how people will say they're no longer craving their alcohol or a hit of a joint or whatever it is to self-soothe. And what we're now looking at are some studies that people are studying this, science is studying this. And what's, what's interesting to me is that the drug companies are not pushing this information. Why are they not pushing this information? You'd think their sales would go up. The drug companies have long learned that there's no profit in addiction medicines. So they're not investing in that campaign. Explain Um, that, David, you would. Explain why that is. Well, first of all, if you stop taking the drug, are your addictive cravings and urges going to come back? And secondly, Medicine is not the only approach to treating addiction. Addiction is a multidisciplinary fix. And so one drug isn't going to do it. But what is interesting, and this leads into why this works, uh, when you take these drugs that um, inhibit your eating, your hunger, those, those hormones, they're working on the reward system. And the reward system is driven by dopamine. So every time you do something that's pleasurable, you get a hit of dopamine. So pretty soon these habits develop. So if you're someone that eats to soothe your bad feelings, you take some food, you get a hit of dopamine, that reinforces that habit that eating is a good thing, and pretty soon you weigh 400 pounds. And there are 
hunger hormones and there are anti-hunger hormones. The hunger hormones that tell you to eat are the incretins, and the hormones in the brain that tell you to stop eating and get away from the table are, are the leptins. And those hormones are regulated all through the reward system. And what we know about these semiglutides is that they control hunger uh, by making the pancreas create more insulin so you can manage the sugar, the extra sugar that's coming in. And also, they manipulate these hormones. One of the things that the semiglutides do is that they increase the amount of leptin, the hormone that says stop eating, and they inhibit the incretins that tell you to eat. And there's a difference. There are four of these products that are out now. And this is not an advertisement for Monjaro, but of the, the other three, uh, the Osempic, the Wagovi, the Ribelsis, those may inhibit the incretins by 30%, whereas Monjaro inhibits those by 60%. So your hunger mechanism is turned off a little bit more with this one. And there are more of these coming down the line because they've been so successful. Um, and these studies are now coming in. There was one done at uh, University of North Carolina where they looked at alcohol and smoking in relationship to the semiglutides. And these anecdotal studies bore out. And there was another study at the University of Pennsylvania, <laughs> poor mice, where they uh, put these mice on cocaine and they gave them these semiglutides and their drive for cocaine went away. So we know that there's a real association. Can I ask you what mice? They didn't mice call present? their dealer or like how? <laughs> yes, I was going to say, how do they present that they're, that they need more cocaine? They don't go over to the crack pellet and like tap at it? That is what they do. It's exactly yeah. right, Anna, is that they, they have a little, you know, constant supply. And when they run out in their brain, they go over to the trough. So I pictured the same thing she did, little mice on cell phones going, come on, come on, answer. Hey, Mikey. But there are other issues. And I think another issue with the drug companies is that, and I think they say this, and I hope they mean this, but if, if this were used for addiction, then the overwhelming um, drive to get these drugs would probably take some of that supply away from people that were obese or had diabetes or had other illnesses that would, that would benefit in a different way. And, and also, these are expensive medicines. They're, they're not cheap. But David, the ramifications of being able to give a drug and get people off that really, with a recidivism rate as high as it's always been, that to find a drug that could actually potentially clean something. I go, I don't want my pizza and I don't want my cocaine. Well, I think this should be part of a discussion going forward. In Override, a uh, very interesting book, uh, we talk about the relationship of addiction to brain chemistry. And addiction is driven by neurotransmitters. And people that have a deficiency in serotonin, they are seeking drugs that supply serotonin. These are, they're looking for calming chemicals. So these people are looking for alcohol and opiates and people that have a deficiency imbalance in dopamine. They're looking to get dopamine from somewhere and they're driven to things like cocaine and methamphetamine and dexedrine and Adderall. So the origins of addiction come into play in this conversation. But you're right, Peter. I think that this, this has to be part of the conversation going forward. 
That's huge. And then I, I just pictured before we move on, little sober living houses for these rodents as they segue back into a normal <laughs> life. <laughs> as long as they're compliant. So in today's Hey, What About Me? Producer Laurie has a question that impacts all of us, actually, when you go seeing a doctor. Yeah, it was. A, I, I think it was last episode. Um, Dr. Kipper, you mentioned that doctor visits were now a six-minute doctor visit. And I know that they're getting shorter, and I, un I understand why. But as a patient, how do I get my information across to the doctor? in that limited amount of time. So let's back up a little bit and see how this came to be. Another study that actually precipitated this conversation was that they uh, looked at people over five years, they took 100,000 patients and they looked at 15 cities and they evaluated the wait time for doctor visits. And it wasn't just a doctor visit. If you understand what a doctor visit is, you call the doctor to get an appointment you finally get through the menu and the electronic system, you get your appointment. You then get in to see the doctor, and that takes, the average now for that is 26 days. It's a long time, it's almost a month. Then you get in to see the doctor, now you're waiting in the waiting room to see the doctor. And those numbers can be anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. Then you get into the doctor's exam room and you're waiting again and that depends on what time of the day you're in and this will address the answer to your question uh, how long you're going to wait once you're naked in a gown waiting for the doctor to come in then the doctor has to make some assessment and send you out for some diagnostics that might be laboratory studies they might be imaging studies they might be seeing a specialist that takes another at least month, sometimes more, to get that back and then to get the results back and then to get back to that doctor, your first doctor, and have that doctor review all this and come up with a treatment plan. There's your three months. So unless you've got a lot of time in a disease or an illness that isn't that complicated, you're okay. But if you have something that's acute, this is a problem. Obviously, with more acute illnesses, they try to speed this along a little bit. But a lot of this changed with the pandemic in that people waited this long of a waiting period, especially people with chronic diseases, ended up with bad outcomes, and some of them death, up to 40% of these people with chronic illnesses waiting this long was a, was a terrible impact. Uh, the weight varies, believe it or not, with what city you're in and what specialists you see. The, the worst cities were Portland, Boston, and Minnesota. Um, the worst specialists to get into were the orthopedists, the obstetricians, and the heart doctors. Uh, costs over the last five years have increased tremendously because 65% of people, instead of going to a primary care doctor like myself, are going to urgent care centers. And the cost of that or to an emergency room is 12 times more expensive than if they had gone to their primary care doctor. If you go to one of these centers, one of these ERs or urgent care centers, you're going to get a workup that's going to be driven by the legal system. They don't want to miss anything. They don't want any malpractice issues. So a guy that comes in with a little chest pain, and instead of talking that through and 
thinking about what can cause that. Can it be coming from the GI tract? Could it be coming from your heart? You're in there a couple hours getting heart studies, getting... So the costs have gone way up. A lot of those people end up getting inappropriately admitted to the hospitals. And during this five-year period, they estimated that it's a $32 billion increase in charges. Remember, the hospitals are expensive. There's your high-ticket item. So some of this is also because our system, since the pandemic has changed, 30% of the people that go normally to a, a GP aren't. They're going somewhere else. Not only urgent care and, and ERs, CBS has a program where they have what's called a minute clinic. I was standing in line, this was a few weeks ago at a CBS, and I look, look to the right and there's a sign on the store that says minute medical clinic. And I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know, is that great? Would I like that? Or is that not great? But, but if you think about it, somebody that's got an acute problem can't get into their doctor. They can get into CVS. Staff shortages have changed dramatically. 20% of medical staff in the last five years has quit. And 120,000 doctors over the last five years have stopped practicing. They left practice. The population is growing and aging, so there's an increase in need to see a doctor. There are more patients. Uh, they're more complicated as they age. The Affordable Care Act sort of overloaded the system a little bit. I'm all for the Affordable Care Act. I think it's wonderful. It's provided care for a lot of people. Um, what I found was interesting is that they surveyed patients' attitudes about their doctors and half of, the, half of the patients said they found their doctors to be lacking compassion, obviously because of the impact of the stress for the doctors and the time and the number of patients. And half of the doctors agreed with them. They said that they absolutely have lost compassion because they don't have any time anymore and they're rushed and they have more paperwork and they're not making enough money and they have more liability issues. So the doctor-patient relationship is out the window because of this. To answer your question, what do you do about this? We should be managing our schedules. Doctors should have their schedules managed a lot better. The CVS system has a software for managing doctor appointments, and we should all be using that. Rescheduling and canceling appointments in this five-year study showed that uh, it was an incredible impact on the doctor-patient relationship and how both sides were very upset about this. Uh, the doctors want the carriers to pay more money. If they paid more money, the doctors would be better at spending a little more time, maybe having less patients. That's concierge medicine, but not everybody can afford concierge medicine. Telemedicine is another option, but again, not everybody has a computer and can do this easily. Not all doctors are excited about telemedicine. There's some doctors that are happy to stay in one place and do it that way, but it's not the best medicine. So getting back to your question, how do you mitigate this? You can either be a squeaky wheel in the waiting room, or you could bring cupcakes in for the staff. The latter works a lot better. So getting, wow, I did not expect you to go there. So getting Jeez. getting to know you can be bought with baked goods. Got it? Absolutely. Wow. Getting to know <laughs> the front office—they're the barrier—and making a relationship with them is helpful. 
Another thing you can do is write down all your questions, bring in a list of all your medicines. Uh, before you go see the doctor, you know what your, you think your problem is, you know your symptoms, look it up and go into Google and look up, you know, I have this set of symptoms, what could I have? So go in educated, go in informed, and go in with your questions. And what I tell people to do is to send us something in advance of your appointment. So the doctor and the nurse, or both, have a chance to look at why you're coming in, and they can look through your chart when you come in, and they can be a little more efficient about this. I don't think any doctor wants to rush through someone's appointment, but they do if they're seeing 25 people a day. And in these larger uh, medical groups, that's what you're doing. In order to meet payroll, you have to see 20, 25 people a day. Uh, it's impossible to do that and provide warm and fuzzy and intelligent care. The other thing is, be the first person in the morning to see the doctor. Get that first morning appointment. I always get the first appointment. I, I, there have been many times I've arrived before the doctor has arrived, and they have to come and be like, sorry, Dr. So-and-so is stuck in traffic. I was like, really? Because I wasn't. you got to treat it like getting a beach chair at a resort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the first appointment after lunch usually is a little more efficient. But it's, yeah. it's getting in there first because by the time you're the second, you're already waiting for Anna, who got there an hour early, and she complicated the visits. So. Got it. I, I do make things complicated. Well, listen, if you guys have a question for Dr. Kipper, you can either come and become a producer on our show, um, or you can go to bedsidematters.org and uh, fill out the questionnaire, leave us a message, write us an email, and Dr. Kipper just might answer your question. Thank you, Producer Lori, for doing that. So let's go ahead and do our sum up. We talked about the CRISPR gene editor helping Alzheimer's. Two new approaches. One is to mute the gene that puts us at high risk, and the other is to mute the gene or edit the gene that creates the amyloid. And then we were talking about, is it better to be a weekend warrior with exercise, or should you exercise every single day? Both work. Just get your exercise. Also, we found out that these weight loss drugs may actually work with addiction issues, which would be unbelievable and so amazing. And we found out that uh, producer Lori had a really good question about wait times, right, David? And the latest in wait times, not good. So for the semi-glutide, the weight medicines, I do think that they impact our reward system that helps us mute the eating response. And as far as wait times, be proactive write out your questions, figure out what you need to talk to the doctor about, send them an email, get to the office as the first appointment of the day, and uh, butter up the staff. Cupcakes. I bring my cookbooks. I bring my sauces. I do, to the doctor's office every, all the time. But Dr. Kipper, what did I bring to your office when I went to your office? Yes, you brought a boatload of sauces and and, and I have your books, and that would have helped if I was in the office when you came. <laughs> I didn't get to see you, but I, got, I did drop off some sauces. It didn't totally help, you guys. <laughs> and thank you for listening to Bedside Matters. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, we're here to help. We offer new episodes every Monday, so follow us, like us. Have a great week. 
The information on bedside matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on bedside matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.